Hello everyone and welcome to the November 8th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. An Orange County judge handed opioid makers their first trial victory in the nation. The judge ruled late Monday that four drug companies cannot be held liable for that state's uh, opioid epidemic. This marked the first trial win for any drug companies in the more than 3,300 lawsuits filed by states and local governments over a drug abuse crisis. Attorneys representing four California counties argued the drug companies used false and misleading marketing to push up the sale of prescription opioids. Their sixth amended complaint asserted causes of action for false advertising, unfair competition, and public nuisance against the companies. And the companies denied any wrongdoing. So phase one of this case regarding liability was tried to the court between April 19 and July 27 this year. None of the parties requested a trial by jury on any claim or issue, and the entire trial was conducted remotely on the Zoom platform. After the parties rested on July 27, the court set a briefing schedule for closing briefs and closing arguments were heard on September 30th and October 1st. In his 41-page ruling, the judge said it was unclear that the drug industry's marketing efforts led to a rise in illegal use of prescription opioid painkillers. He also acknowledged that his court is aware of the toll being taken on society but by what has been variously referred to as the opioid crisis or the opioid epidemic. However, he noted that the California legislature has approved and continues to approve the availability of opioid medications through prescriptions by passing several laws, including the Pain Patients Bill of Rights. He concluded that it was the intent of the legislature to encourage physicians to provide adequate pain management to patients in California. And the California legislature made clear its intention to expand rather than restrict the appropriate prescribing of opioid medications. The absence of evidence concerning medically inappropriate prescriptions also breaks the chain of causation between defendants' alleged wrongful conduct and the harms that are part of the case. The ruling reviewed documents presented during the trial against each defendant in great detail and concluded that none of the identified statements appear to be false or misleading. He also noted that an allegedly false or misleading statement in an internal company document that was in no way published or disseminated prior before the public would not qualify as false advertising under the statute or applicable cases. Thus, the judge ordered judgment for the defendants on all claims. The ruling came as J&J and the three largest U.S. drug distributors, McKesson Corporation, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen, worked to finalize a proposed deal to pay up to $26 billion to settle the thousands of cases against them. 
and a bankruptcy judge in August approved a settlement by Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma and its wealthy Sackler family owners, valued at more than $10 billion. The only other opioid trial to reach a verdict resulted in an Oklahoma judge uh, in 2019 ordering J&J to pay $465 million to the state of Oklahoma. And J&J is appealing that decision. Trials are currently underway in a New York case against Teva and AbbVie and in Ohio against three pharmacy chain operators. The National Council on Compensation Insurance, that's NCCI, released its next updated countrywide court case update. The November 2021 edition provides a look at some of the key cases and decisions that may impact workers' comp across the states. This report provides insights on topics such as COVID-19 court cases, workers' compensation exclusive remedy, challenges to state adoption of third-party guides, developments in marijuana, including reimbursement and employment-related questions, air ambulance reimbursement versus state versus federal law, and additional federal and state developments listed by geographic zone. The, report, the reports say that in California, the second Appellate District will consider in a seize candies case whether work comp exclusive remedy bars a lawsuit that was brought by an employee alleging that the employer's failure to provide sufficient safeguards against COVID-19 caused the death of the employee's spouse, who was infected after the employee contracted the virus at work. And another case headed to the U.S. Supreme Court is significant to California, since California is governed by the Ninth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals, where the case was heard. Back in 2020, in the case of the United States versus the state of Washington, the Federal Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirmed a federal district court decision upholding the constitutionality of a Washington workers' compensation statute that creates a presumption of compensability for certain types of diseases contracted by federal contractors working at the Hanford Federal Nuclear Cleanup Site. The court rejected the federal government's argument that the workers' compensation statute violated the federal intergovernmental immunity doctrine, which invalidates state laws that seek to regulate the United States directly or discriminate against the federal government and those with whom it deals. The court further concluded that the workers' compensation statute in Washington falls within the scope of a federal law that authorizes the state to regulate workers' comp on federal land to the same extent that the states can regulate on non-federal land. The federal government filed a petition for writ of certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court this September. The essential question presented is whether a state's workers' compensation law that applies exclusively to federal contract workers who perform services at a specified federal facility is barred by principles of intergovernmental immunity. 
And now our crime report. A Southern California physician, 81-year-old Benedict Leo, who lives in Fullerton, has been found guilty of 26 felony charges for fraudulently distributing an unapproved cancer treatment over a six-year period, charging up to $2,000 per bottle. During his five-day trial, the evidence showed he operated the Oyama Moto Cancer Research Foundation, which had offices in Monterey Park and later in West Covina. Leo asked the FDA to approve an investigational new drug application and stated that he planned to engage in clinical trials for a product called Alisgen and stated it was his intent to treat and cure many types of cancer. The FDA informed Dr. Leo that the applications had been placed on full clinical hold due to deficiencies in the submissions. If it were to have been approved, the FDA would require that it bear a label stating that it was a new drug limited by federal law to investigational use. Without any approval, Dr. Leo manufactured Alcigen in Fullerton and distributed the unapproved drug and labeled it a supplement and not a drug. He set the price at $2,000 per bottle and sold it to customers in various states and in foreign countries. Over the years, he received about $1,600,000 from this enterprise. The jury found that Dr. Leo schemed to defraud buyers by failing to inform them that it was not an approved cancer treatment, that the FDA had placed it on hold, barring any distribution of it, that he was not allowed to charge anything for it, and that it could have side effects that were unpredictable and could be serious. Dr. Leo remains free on bail, and his sentencing will take place in February when he faces a maximum prison sentence of nearly 200 years. A former Costa Mesa resident was arrested on suspicion of collecting over $1.4 million from companies that paid for bogus workers' comp insurance coverage. 53-year-old Karen Lynn Reed, an unlicensed insurance agent, was arraigned for grand theft, forgery, embezzlement, and aggravated white-collar crime for allegedly defrauding three victims. Reed was arrested in Seabrook, Texas and extradited back to Orange County. An investigation by the Department of Insurance found that Reed acted as an insurance agent without a license and collected premiums for workers' comp insurance through her businesses, Envoy Business Partners and Allen Specialty Group. She would provide her victims with fraudulent certificates of insurance, causing her victims to believe they had valid coverage when in fact there was none. The investigation t- discovered Reed also operated a staffing company without valid workers' comp coverage and personally adjusted administered employee injury claims. She collected workers' compensation premiums and payroll, as well as employer and employee taxes from the victims, and provided them with falsified certificates of insurance. Reed is due back in court in December. 
The case is being prosecuted by the major fraud unit of the Orange County District Attorney's Office. A Las Vegas woman pleaded guilty to using at least 40 stolen identities to fraudulently collect about $176,000 in unemployment insurance benefits from the California Employment Development Department. 45-year-old Danielle Lacaris Buck defrauded the California EDD into paying her about $176,000 in benefits. She obtained stolen identities through her job in the medical industry. She used her access to patient information to steal the personal identifying information such as names, dates of birth, and social security numbers of unsuspecting individuals, and then electronically filed false unemployment claims using the stolen names and information. Buck filed more than 50 false unemployment insurance claims using at least 40 different stolen identities. She withdrew cash from an unemployment insurance benefits debit card at ATMs in the Las Vegas and Los Angeles metropolitan areas. Buck pleaded guilty to one count of mail fraud and one count of aggravated identity theft and she faces a statutory maximum penalty of 20 years in prison for mail fraud and a mandatory minimum two-year term in prison for aggravated identity theft when she is sentenced next January. And in regulatory news, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has issued an emergency temporary standard to protect unvaccinated employees of large employers, that's 100 or more employees, from the risk of contracting COVID-19. Covered employers must develop, implement, and enforce a mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policy or adopt a policy requiring employees to either get vaccinated or elect to undergo regular COVID-19 testing and wear a face covering at work in lieu of vaccination. This new standard applies to employers with a total of 100 or more employees at any time the standard is in effect. The OSHA rule is effective immediately. To comply, employers must ensure provisions are addressed in the workplace. In 30 days, all requirements other than testing for employees who have not been fully vaccinated and within 60 days, testing for employees who have not received all doses required for a primary vaccination. OSHA also requires employers to require employees to promptly provide notice when they receive a positive COVID-19 test or are diagnosed with COVID-19 and immediately remove those employees from the workplace and keep infected employees out of the workplace until they meet criteria for returning to work. OSHA is proceeding in a stepwise fashion, they say, in addressing the emergency this rule covers and needs additional time to assess the capacity of smaller employers and is seeking comment to help the agency make that determination. The new standard is intended to preempt states' laws and political subdivisions of states from adopting and enforcing workplace requirements 
relating to these issues except under the authority of a federally approved state plan. OSHA intends to preempt any state or local requirements that ban or limit an employer from requiring vaccination, face covering, or testing. Where OSHA finds a grave danger from the virus no longer exists or new information that indicates a change in measures are necessary to address the grave danger, OSHA may update this standard as appropriate. Los Angeles City officials are set to implement some of the nation's strictest COVID-19 vaccine verification rules next week. Officials plan to start with educational and outreach efforts rather than immediately penalize businesses when rules go into effect this Monday. That's similar to the approach of officials in Los Angeles County as a whole. While both the county and the city have rules requiring residents to show proof of vaccination to enter certain businesses, the county's rules affect fewer types of establishments compared with those of the city of Los Angeles. Enforcement of the city program will not officially begin until November 29. Starting that date, businesses will face penalties, at first a warning, then an escalating series of fines starting at $1,000 and topping out at $5,000 for a fourth or subsequent violation. The City of Los Angeles rules are expansive, requiring proof of full COVID-19 vaccinations to enter indoor restaurants, shopping centers, movie theaters, hair and nail salons, coffee shops, gyms, museums, bowling alleys, performance venues, and other places, and attenders of outdoor events with 5,000 or more people also will have to show proof of vaccination or that they've been recently tested negative for the coronavirus. L.A. County, on the other hand, has imposed vaccine verification requirements only on a few businesses and sectors, such as indoor bars, wineries, breweries, distilleries, nightclubs, and lounges. The L.A. County verification requirement has been in place now for nearly a month, but health officials said this week they have yet to see or cite any businesses for noncompliance. County health officials confirmed this week they are not considering any changes to their rules. The WCIRB has released its updated COVID-19 report, which details the characteristics of COVID-19 workers' compensation claims in California. In total, including denied claims, almost 160,000 COVID-19 claims have been reported to the DWC as of early September. About 43% of the COVID-19 claims have been reported by self-insured employers. Typically, about one-third of non-COVID claims are self-insured employers' claims. But with the Delta variant, they caution that those numbers are likely to grow. More than one-half of COVID-19 claims were incurred by workers with ages between 16 and 39, 
which is somewhat higher than the proportion of all indemnity claims included by younger workers. In a typical year, about 600,000 workers' compensation claims of all types are filed. In the early months of the pandemic, the ratio of workers' compensation claims to infections was high with a statewide stay-at-home order, a relatively broad presumption of compensability, and most claims arising from healthcare workers and first responders. The high share of healthcare COVID-19 claims has been relatively consistent throughout the pandemic. The winter surge was severe in California, with about one half of the infections and workers' compensation claims arising during that period. In December 2020, at the height of the winter surge, more than one-third of all indemnity claims were COVID-19 claims. But since the rollout of the vaccines in early 2021, the ratio of workers' comp claims relative to infection has been relatively low. After dropping sharply in the spring of 2021, following the rollout of the vaccines, the proportions of COVID-19 claims have recently increased somewhat with the Delta variant. About 22% of the COVID-19 death claims reported are from the healthcare sector. And COVID-19 death claims are often reported relatively late, and as a result, the totals for 2021 will likely increase. Almost 80% of COVID-19 death claims were incurred by workers aged 50 or older, compared to about one-third of all indemnity claims. Denial rates on COVID-19 claims have been higher than on non-COVID-19 claims, as only about 7% of non-COVID claims are denied. Many COVID-19 claims are denied due to the lack of a positive test result for a COVID-19 infection. Virtually all COVID-19 indemnity-only claims close quickly, as they typically involve only short durations of temporary disability. COVID-19 claims with both medical and indemnity benefits on average close more quickly than the typical indemnity claim as more have relatively small incurred values. And in medical news, Merck has signed eight deals to sell more than two million courses of its experimental COVID-19 pill, Malnuvipavir, to governments around the world. It has applied for approval in the United States and said it can make 10 million courses in 2021. A Food and Drug Administration Advisory Committee is scheduled to evaluate the safety and efficacy data of the pill on November 30th and then decide whether or not to approve it for emergency use authorization in the U.S. Last week, the company reached a deal with the United Nations-backed Medicines Patient Pool that will allow more companies to manufacture generic versions of the pill with a royalty-free license applying to 105 low- and middle-income countries. So far, Merck has agreed to license the drug to several India-based generic drug makers. The Merck pill, in effect, forces the coronavirus to mutate itself to death. 
The drug tricks the virus into using the drug for replication, then inserting errors into the virus genetic code once replication is underway. When enough copying errors occur, the virus is essentially killed off, unable to replicate any further. But according to an article that appeared in Forbes, the drug raises two key concerns. The first is the drug's potential mutagenesis and the possibility that its use could lead to birth defects or cancerous tumors. The second is a danger that is far greater and potentially far deadlier, the drug's potential to supercharge SARS-CoV-2 mutations and unleash a more virulent variant upon the world. The company claims the antiviral fill it's developing can cut hospitalizations and deaths among people with COVID-19 by one half. The results have not yet been peer-reviewed, but if the drug candidate is authorized by regulators, it would be the first oral antiviral treatment for COVID-19. By contrast, the other currently authorized drugs must be delivered intravenously or injected. A pill could make treating patients earlier on in the, their infection much easier and much more effective than an injectable drug. While the vast majority of employees across most industries and sectors have acquiesced to mandatory vaccine mandates, enough Americans are refusing to get the jab, and states and municipalities are losing a dangerous game of chicken with employees who refuse. Last Saturday, 26 New York fire companies have been shuttered citywide due to staff shortages caused by the COVID-19 vaccine mandate. The stunning lockdown came amid a pitched battle between New York City Hall, which will start enforcing a mandate Monday, and jab-resisting firefighters, many reportedly saying they were already sick with the coronavirus and therefore have natural immunity. Across the Rockies, Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva has warned of an imminent threat to public safety caused by a mass exodus of thousands of deputies and civilian personnel who refused to take the vaccine. He said he could lose potentially 44% of his workforce in one day. The Sheriff's Department, which is the largest in the country, employs about 18 thousand people. Meanwhile in Arizona, a Tucson water employee claims the department is losing staff over the mandate. And American Airlines cancellations are disrupting transportation. The company scrubbed more than 1,900 flights over last weekend, but company officials deny that the problem is related to a protest of the vaccine mandate. However, its phenomena is so similar to the massive cancellation Southwest Airlines had just a few months ago as to raise questions about the cause. And the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police won a small victory in its fight against the city employee COVID vaccine mandate on Monday when a county judge temporarily lifted the mandate's requirement 
that all police be fully vaccinated or have a valid exemption by December 31st. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news. Thank you.